Case number 22-1045 et al. Liquid Energy Pipeline Association Petitioner versus Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and United States of America. Mr. Estrada for the carrier petitioners, Mr. Aducci for the shipper petitioners, Mr. Glover for the respondents. Morning, Council. Mr. Estrada, please proceed when you're ready. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the Court. The notice and comment issue alone suffices to set aside the 2022 rule and restore the 2020 rule without addressing any other issue for this Court. From the Consumer Energy Council in 1982 to this Court's Humane Society's decision last year, it is clear that the 2020 rule became law and could only be displaced or repealed by complying with the APA's notice and comment requirement. But even if the APA were not wholly controlling in this case, the 2022 rule must still be set aside because no rehearing could be legally granted a year after the fact in defiance of this Court's unbunk ruling in Allegheny. If that were all not enough, if the Deputy Secretary of FERC has the power FERC says it does, then he is an officer of the United States who was improperly appointed under the Appointments Clause. Let me start with the APA point. This Court held in Humane Society that a rule becomes law when it is made available for inspection in the Federal Register, even before publication, and even if the contemplated effective rule is in the future. After that, any change to the rule must comply with notice and comment. This rule was made available for public inspection on February 12, 2021, and that was six days before the purported tolling order and four days before publication. After the rule was made available to the public under Humane Society, it could be changed through rehearing or otherwise in the usual process only by complying with the APA. The fact that there was a rehearing petition filed, timely or not timely, we can discuss the Allegheny issue separately, does not change any of this. From consumer energy to Pruitt to Sprint, this Court has confronted the same claim by an agency and has consistently pointed out that the fact that rehearing, reconsideration, or a similar process may be available does not change the application of the APA once something has become law. I refer the Court specifically to the consumer energy decision, page 446 of the decision and footnote 71 where this issue is discussed, and I will quote because it's important. The Court said Congress did not intend to permit the Commission to use the occasion of a petition for rehearing to make any substantive change whatsoever in a rule without providing notice and comment. The same case went on to say that the very definition of rulemaking in the APA contemplates that it's a process for formulating, amending, repealing a rule, and Congress would not have included the repeal of a rule with the definition of rulemaking if an agency abandoning its previous work were not meant to be subject also to notice and comment. Indeed, again, page 46, the Court said it is in those cases where the Court has accomplished its work that it'd be most useful to look for the views of the public to see if there is any percentage to be gained in sort of starting again and changing course. Likewise, you know, through it, I won't go through every case, you know, there was a reconsideration petition file. The agency, the APA in this case, responded by saying that it intended 
to reconsider the actual rule and staying the rule. This court held that even the stay was effectively an order modifying or repealing the rule and was subject to the APA. And again, I won't even get into the into the sprint case because there was a number of overlapping, you know, rehearing petitions. And ultimately, the agency came to this court on the faith of the assertion that it had sua sponte, the ability to change the rule on reconsideration. The court said, well, you do as you, you know, you do you, but you have to comply with the APA. I think ultimately, you know, if it is the case under humane society that the agency could not yank the rule before publication prevent its effectiveness, even though the effectiveness was in the future. I just don't see how the agency could say today that the rule did not become law and it did not have to comply with notice and comment before it jettisoned the rule more than a year later. Um, I will say another sort of word. So what on, is the date putting all these cases together that you think they could no longer alter the rule through a rehearing? I think February 12, 2021. That's when you can look at the Federal Register website. That's when Under Humane Society was made available to the public. Um, under the Federal Register website, I can give you the site as well. Um, it was published on February 16, but under the holding of Humane Society, the publication is not legally controlling. It was the making available to the public on February 12, 2021. Um, we also have to reconcile um, the rehearing here, um, those principles with the rehearing with authority that happens here and it's only a couple a few agencies that can do this but have this rehearing authority um uh, and and we have cases that have recognized that they can use the rehearing authority even for notice and comment rules the supreme court has referenced their use of rehearing um uh, for notice and comment rules and um well, let me make it an eye. And so I'm trying to figure out how to reconcile these two systems. Is there a cutoff date when, when you're when you're dealing with this agency and its statutory scheme? Is there a different cutoff date for when they can no longer tinker with a rehearing, for example, the effective date? Or or, or do we have or does this have to map directly onto uh, the humane society model? So you've been arguing, uh, which would mean there is no real rehearing authority because okay. the publication of the Federal Register would be the end of the rehearing, the beginning and the end on the same day. Let me make three points, um, Your Honor. You know, the first one is that the date of inspection by the Federal Register is to a large extent within control of the agency. The agency can make it available here. They took 60 days. Um, if they thought that they wanted to hold the rule pending the rehearing consideration, it was up to them to arrange their own affairs so that they could sort of use their own rules to reconsider the rules if they thought that that might be appropriate. How could the they point. do that before putting it on public inspection? Well, I think, you know, under the Federal Register Act, which is separate from the APA, you were supposed to send it to the agency, but the, but the agency gets to choose to some extent when they will send it to the Federal Register. Here, in fact, the agency took like several weeks to send it to the Federal Register, and there is no actual deadline, as far as I can tell the Federal Register Act, for them to send it in. Now, the second point is that um, I am not saying, and I should not be understood as saying, that well, agencies cannot change rules. They can change any rule, whether on rehearing or otherwise. They just have to comply with notice and comment. And the third point is that, you know, the general rule is that you have to comply with the APA to change a legislative rule. There are any number of rehearing occasions where there is an occasion for, you know, rehearing where the parties are seeking what in effect is a clarification. 
And of course, if the agency is able to clarify its work in what would be upheld as an interpretive rule, that is not subject to the APA. And so, but ultimately, it would be up to the agency to arrange its affairs, either by withholding the delivery to the Federal Register or by alerting the parties that it intends to issue a rehearing by something other than a tolling order, something that acts upon the rehearing and sets a schedule or actually grants a rehearing with a view to giving the parties notice as to what it is contemplating doing. Which one of those is your, because the carriers filed, sought a rehearing too. And does that fit within your last category or? Well, let me say, let me say two things about that. We sought a rehearing on something that I think I would place under the interpretive area, because frankly, you know, the agency had goofed in picking one page versus the other on the like 2016 report data and the agency acknowledged that. So I think it was like minor and ministerial, but even if we're not the case, you know, the gotcha point is cute, but sort of irrelevant because in seeking rehearing, we did not tell the agency what process it should use to consider our petition or theirs. The compliance with the APA is up to the agency. So it's not as if we sought, you know, rehearing and said, oh, if you think you have to comply with the APA to rule for us, please don't. And so this is sort of like a side point. And so I don't see what the relevance it has, but ultimately I think it falls, you know, within what I described earlier, that agencies of course have leeway to engage in interpreted activity that does not engage in legislative rulemaking. And so that's entirely different. As I said to your honor, I mean, there are other parts of these statutes, not this one, in which there is not the ability to set aside the rule or repeal it. There is the ability to modify it, but keep in mind that under this court's cases, that is not a new rule. That is a modification to the original rule. And that has, you know, it's on appellate consequences. You have to sort of like seek, you know, review from that. But I mean, ultimately I am not bothered at all by the proposition that if the agency puts itself as a humane society in the position where you send this to the federal register and it has become law, you have to comply with the APA to change the law. I mean, I don't think that's a complicated principle for agencies to follow. And they have a number of tools at their disposal to exercise and self-help if they believe that the rules, you know, require greater flexibility. Now, with respect to the tolling issue, because even if this issue were not completely, you know, dispositive, I just want to emphasize that the agency cannot get past this court's, you know, decision in Allegheny either. You know, there is this question of, well, the ICA, you know, the statute that controls here does not have a 30-day deadline. And I think, okay, true but irrelevant. And in order to understand that, let me just point out that, you know, pretty much all of the statutes that the commission administers, you know, the Natural Gas Act, the Federal Power Act, and the Natural Gas Policy Act have this deadline. In 1947, the commission first had a regulation dealing with the first two that basically tracked the statute. In 1979, the commission added a regulation that tracked the National Gas Policy Act that's slightly worded differently but not really differently. And in 1982, and this is the key fundamental point here, in order to bring order to all of these statutes, including the ICA, the commission adopted the regulations at issue here. 
And what it said was it was going to have a uniform text to govern, govern all of these, you know, rehearing. It says we're going to have a single um, system for all of these statutes, including the, AC, the ICA. Now, that's important for purposes of our you know, reliance on Allegheny for several reasons. You know, the most obvious is that if you look at page 14 of this court's ruling in Allegheny, right-hand column, these very regulations were at issue in Allegheny because they were also relevant to the natural gas issue in that case. And what this court said in an opinion by uh, Judge Blatt was that the only thing that these regulations authorize and delegate is the authority not to act upon on the, on the rehearing petition. And so we know from the holding of Allegheny that these very same regulations were core of the court and construed in Allegheny. Um, we know as well that the that the dispositive not language to act upon not, to, not act upon, to act upon the petition in the ways authorized. There's a there were a limited number of ways to act upon a petition specified in the statute there, and that's what the secretary definitely could not do. But here you have a statute that doesn't enumerate what it means to act upon a rehearing petition. In fact, this is also this self-created. I, voluntary process by FERC. So does I accept matter? that, Your Honor, but I have two answers uh, to that. Number one, I think it is fair to say, as you just did, that in trying to figure out what act upon was, the, the court read the preceding sentence in the Natural Gas Act in that, in that case. But ultimately, you know, the court did two things. Um, it construed the meaning of act upon and said you have to engage the merits. Um, and it also construed the meaning of the hearing and it said, and I will quote, that hunting down the road or announcing an intention to decide something about the rehearing application at some specified time in the future, quote, does not fall within the ordinary meaning of rehearing or any definition of rehearing known to the law. And so I think, like, you take that, which is not bound by the preceding sentence, but I think the more dispositive point is the point that I started with, which is in, 1990, in 1982, the regulation that was adopted to govern the Natural Gas Act, which was before you, and this statute, um, whatever the natural gas may have contemplated in the preceding sentence, that boiled down in the same regulation that you construed here, and that you construed as not authorizing acting upon, uh, you know, the, the petition on the merits. So, you know, it may well be for purposes of a hypothetical that in fact- Well, they not- wanted to group them all together back then when they had- what they thought was tolling authority under all the statutes. And then when that went away, the question is whether the tolling authority remained. They, they wanted consolidation, but then Allegheny changed the rules, at least as natural gas. Well, I, mean, Power Act, but... I mean, the Umbank Court, in fairness to the commission, did overrule a couple of cases. The Umbank Court, in fairness to the commission, did overrule a couple of cases. So I guess I would say the commission can be forgiven for having thought way back when that it had this authority. Right. Um, no, right. That's what I'm saying. But point. they put them together. But now, right. Once, well, but, but, once Allegheny said, as to these statutes, it's not going to work. How do we know that's what it meant for the interstate? Yes, but Allegheny said that as to these statutes and this uh, regulation. And the problem for the commission here is that in 1982, it enacted a regulation that covered that case and this case. And that regulation was at issue in Allegheny, and the language is identical, Um, which is not to say that as a legal proposition in a hypothetical world in a different planet, 
the commission could not have adopted a different regulation to govern the ICA, but as a legal proposition, having adopted a unitary regulation with identical... The court comes along and says, as to statutes A and B, that regulatory definition is foreclosed by statute. That doesn't mean that the court has said that regulatory interpretation, your application of regulation is foreclosed by statute C. I mean, I suppose that one could have what I would call a Humpty Dumpty, you know, definition of a regulation where the interpretation of the same words changing changes, you know, depending... The tolling activity out of that regulation, the only thing that really the tolling authority to govern was ICA. Let me make two points about that. I think, you know, I think it would be conceivably possible for the commission to have a separate regulation to govern the ICA subject to a different time standard. I think it's really legally impossible for the commission to say that it is adopting a unitary standard for all three statutes and then construe the identical language differently, depending on which statute is at issue. Nothing about the definition for statute C. Well, I mean... It seems to me like... But it said it was adopted... You can look at the release in 1982, and I guess I should give you the site, but, you know, the whole point of it is... It happens that courts will come along and say that a statute forbids the regulation to mean X under this statute, but that doesn't say it can't mean X under a different statute that it also covers. It's just, you know, there was some surgery, but that doesn't mean the whole thing... I don't really find it plausible that the language could mean... That the identical language in the same legal document could mean diametrically different things in different contexts. But accepting that for purposes of the current argument, I will point out that there is another consideration that was present in Allegheny that the court took into account that I think is equally applicable here, which is that what the commission was doing effectively was redlining out the 30-day deadline out of the rehearing statute in the Natural Gas Act. And you said, well, okay, you can't do that by this sort of administrative action. You have to go to Congress to change the statute. Now, of course, we have the same 30-day deadline in the regulation that indisputably governs here. And whereas you wouldn't have to go to Congress to change it, we do have the Accardi principle since 1954 in the Supreme Court that an agency has to comply with their own procedural regulations until they are changed. And so just as the agency could not redline the 30-day time period out of the statute without going to Congress, the agency could no more redline the 30-day period in the regulation without changing the regulation. And so the same consideration that led the court in Allegheny to say this type of order is insufficient to exercise whatever authority you may have to rehear in this time period for slightly different reasons also applies here. And so, I mean, ultimately, I think you could conceivably sort of think of a world in which the commission could have written a different regulation and could have said, I have greater authority under the ICA. Good luck for them in a future case, but it's not this case. And, you know, the final point I will make on that, because I see that I am a little bit out, is that if this were authorized, it would be a significant exercise of authority. We know under Buckley v. Vallejo that any 
person that exercises significant authority under the authority of the United States is an officer. The commission concedes that this is an office that is established by law because if they are right that they that the deputy secretary and the secretary have the authority to do what this court said in Allegheny, in fact, they don't, but they are right in this context, let's assume, then this would have been an action executed by an officer that was improperly appointed because it was appointed by the chairman and not the commission as required by the head of the department. And therefore, the action would be ineffective on that ground alone under any of these views. I'll get to your separate argument that even assuming they could act as they did on rehearing and bypass notice and comment, you argue that they did not consider reliance interests. And so it was arbitrary, it would be arbitrary and capricious for failure to consider reliance interests. But there's no real specification as to what reliance interests there were in this case. There's nothing, it's just sort of a bland assertion. And I think we have cases that have said that's not sufficient. No, actually, with all due respect, I think that the relevant question here and the relevant sort of head of analysis is whether the commission's failure to comply with the APA can be excused on a no harm, no foul principle because the APA says that things that don't... That's a separate argument. That's a harmless error argument as to failure to engage in notice and comment. I'm asking you a different question. That is, assume you're incorrect that they had to do notice and comment. So assume they were proper, and I'm sorry I wasn't clear, to proceed on rehearing. I understood you to still have an argument that it was, their decision was arbitrary and capricious. Or you have lots of reasons, but one of them was... That is the question on the merits. Right. Failure to grapple with reliance interests. We have said, you know, it's not enough to say they didn't deal with reliance without giving some argument as to what the reliance interest was here. I mean, the companies were making more money, but that's not a reliance interest. Normally one would expect something like contracts were made, investments were made, and there's nothing like that in the record of the briefing that I could see. No, the reason why I thought this was tied to the harmless error question, and I think, you know, the questions are overlapping, is because in the context of the harmless error, if you were to agree that notice and comment were required, then the only question is, would it have done any good? And in that case, if there is any uncertainty whatsoever as to what somebody might have said, then you have to take it. And the point that we have made on the merits is sort of really twofold. Number one, we were not permitted to respond to the rehearing, so we cannot be taxed for not having made a full-blown argument on all the things that you're identifying. Certainly before the agency, but in your briefing here, there's no... We have pointed out that we had every expectation based on the wording of Rule of Order 561 beginning in 1993, that this is a process that occurs only every five years. I think it is obvious, and doesn't actually need even a record that we were not permitted to provide to the agency, that this is a process that leads to investment back disputation, because this is like a heavily investment-driven sort of area, and if you have expectations as to what the income streams are going to be based on this being done every five years, it's different from the agency doing randomly every couple of years sort of on a different schedule that kind of predicted for loans, income streams, and the like. To the extent that the agency is going to do this, I think we would say that when the agency first did this, it was in the throes of COVID, and in fact, in the original 
record in 2020, we pointed out that what the even what we were proposing was not sufficiently beneficial to us because we were in a depressed state. But by the time we got notice on what would have happened as to what our expectations and reliance were, in the middle of 2022, people had given up the pretense that inflation was transitory. And we had a different set of conditions with supply line issues and the like. We could point out to all of those things. So there was like investment issues, expectations, the different economic conditions that prevailed in 2022 versus 2020. And again... I just want to make sure I'm understanding this argument because it sounds like at one time you're saying, I would have thought between 2020 and 2022, when the December rule was governing, because of the pandemic, there may not, and the economic depression, including in the oil industry that came from that, there may not have been a whole lot of investment going on. Maybe you would have been gearing up to do it in 2022, but this new rule came in and... Well, I'm saying two slightly different things, but I think it's worthwhile to keep them separately. The first one is that the data that the agency considered in coming up with an index in 2020 were unfavorable to us and worked to our detriment because of the conditions that then prevailed. And that the conditions in 2022, when the agency woke up to the fact that it wanted to do a 180, were also unfavorable to us for different reasons because inflation was up and there were supply line issues. So they got us coming and going. But that shows to the benefits of notice and comment, to go back to the earlier question, because you cannot say that we would not have benefited from being able to point out all of these things when the commission sort of anticipated that it was contemplating a turnabout later, to say nothing of all of the issues now being raised by shippers about retroactivity and whether we have to compensate them, which of course could have been debated in front of the agency instead of you. Can I ask, just try to understand the procedural issue here. Let's suppose we agreed with you on your reliance interest issue. Would we have to, and we said, okay, we'll grant the petition on those grounds. Would we have to reach the appointments clause issue? No. I mean, as I said earlier, if you agree with us, I mean, on the reliance issue, you mean? Yes. I'm not understanding which of the issues. I mean, it seems... The arbitrary and capricious because they didn't consider the reliance interest. I think the appointments clause issue is antecedent to that because their consideration of the merits in 2022 was only made possible by the purported tolling. And so I think both the Allegheny issue and the appointments clause issue are logically antecedent to that. If the tolling was ineffective because you blew the 30-day deadline and Allegheny applied, then they never had an occasion to do a rehearing. They clearly had to do a new rulemaking on the notice of comment. So these issues as to how they did it and the merits of it are sort of somewhat academic. And if the officer was improperly appointed, even if the tolling was appropriate, otherwise under Allegheny, you know, the same issue also arises because even if somebody could have told, this person could not. And so before you had it in front of you as an appropriate docket for you to consider on the merits, 
you have to have it in front of you. And as I said earlier at the but beginning. That doesn't make any sense to me. This isn't like some jurisdictional ordering thing. Steel company. Right. Sorry? It's not steel company. Right. Yeah, it's not like that. So well, if there's if an agency order is challenged as being um, you know, lawfully not authorized for whatever timing issue or wrong process, notice and comment, and there's arguments that it's arbitrary and capricious. And if we say it falls because oh, it was, there was, it was well, arbitrary and capricious. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, you're saying matter. what you necessarily, well, if you're going to rule for me on another ground that is logically subsequent, yes, I agree. You don't have to reach that question. Well, is that right, though? Because you said that. Well, because the remedies could be different in the in the situation. I was I was going to get Sorry. to that, which is to say, um, ordinarily, if the if the issue that you're reaching um, reaching would give me complete relief, yes, there is no necessary order as in the steel company um, case. But if the issue that is like third in line logically doesn't give me the relief I get from issues one and two, it seems to me is. There one and two are logically antecedent, and you have to reach them ahead of the arbitrary and capricious issue. I mean, it seems to me that if, let's suppose, for the sake of argument, you are right on the appointments clause issue, then it would seem to me that vacature then of the tolling order, because it was, you know, ultra virus, so to speak. Um, then if that's the case, then then the commission doesn't have the authority to act on reconsideration. That is correct. And you get your um, the prior order, the December order, so to speak, that you like. That is correct. But if we uh, were to not pass on that issue and say, well, they were arbitrary and capricious, uh, because they failed to act on uh, or consider the reliance interests, they get a do-over, right? Right. And you don't that's... want a do-over. You want Correct. December rule. And so that is a lesser form of relief for me. And therefore, um, from my point of view, I would not accept that unless you reject my previously antecedent uh, my logically antecedent argument. So the answer to my earlier question is no. You yeah. Okay. Is it true that if if we were to, it's all hypothetical, of course, but if we were to remand without vacature for you know failure to address assorted matters, including reliance, um, that as a court, there's some case that says the court we can't do that when you have argued for um, a vacature remedy? Would the agency not have the ability to consider the arguments you've pressed here that would have resulted in greater relief I on think that as part age, of that remand process? It's going to open things up. You can I do mean, it all again. And now you're going to have your chance to file things with the agency, which you didn't have before. What, I, what, what cases we can't? We have to do the other. I signal, I think, is a line of cases from your court that usually tries to identify whether the errors that the agency has committed are egregious enough to just do a remand or vacate the order. Um, the general rule on the RLI signal that if it's just a question of explanation, you send it back without vacator. And if it's just a, if it's like a fundamental failure to comply with the law, you vacate it. Um, but as I said to your colleague, Judge Wilkins, 
seems to me that that, to me, comes downstream from my APA objection, my Allegheny objection, and, and my appointment clause objection, because all of those would lead, in my view, to complete vacator and set aside of the 2022 rule under Ally Signal. And so um, you would have to conclude that I'm wrong on, this, on those three things and only write on the garbled, you know, the explanation in 2022. Well, notice and comment violations certainly overwhelmingly tend to result in vacature, but it's not 100% required. No, but you have so, to have a compelling demonstration on the part of the agency that there is absolutely nothing I could have said, and I just gave you a list of all the things I could have said. This is discussed in the closing pages of the Sprint case, where the court said, and I will quote, if there is any uncertainty at all as to the effect of the failure, you have to set it aside for the good and sufficient reason that if you start excusing failure to comply notice and comment, agency, agencies won't do it. Um, and so all, you know, any doubt on this court always falls on the agency and you cannot permit, you know, the agency to hypothesize outlandish ways in which, you know, this might not have made a difference. It's up to them to negate the possibility that there was a difference. And so that's the difference. Okay. The other difficulty we have, though, is that at least one reading of the, um, uh, I don't know what to call it, I guess the, the second, the current rule, um, the 2022 rule, um, was that it found that it, quote, must, repeatedly used the word must, um, make this change, you know, address the tax consequences to have a just and reasonable rate. And if the consequences of vacature would be to reinstate what the commission itself seemingly labeled as an unjust and unreasonable rate, I know that's debated here, but they four or five times use the word must to make that just and reasonable. Well, have to vacate if the consequences to reinstate what, if we read the agency as having said, that rate was unjust and unreasonable. What happens then? Let me say three things about that. Um, I mean, assuming that that were true, which it isn't, for reasons I will get to presently, um, you know, the remedy of the shippers was to appeal, was to appeal the 2020 rule and show that. Um, and so it was not to just sort of come here later and say we never exercise our appellate rights and we would like you to, to assume something that was never proven. But the fact is, if you look at the commission's brief in this court, I think page 84, they in fact deny that that's what they intended in the 2020. Well, that's rule. the commission brief. Yes. But I'm reading the commission's words, which, but, which is what we have to follow here. And it is absolutely true that four or five times in the relevant area, they say we must but result, we must you know, adjust more, for this tax consequences to have a just and reasonable rate. So the more must to have a just and reasonable rate doesn't mean that it wasn't just and reasonable with that rate in there. I think the more relevant point is that even if they were not eating it on appeal, um, if they they, even if they were not eating that on appeal and mm -hmm. walking away from it, they're just wrong on the merits, right? Because what they were really talking about is the implementation of this court's 2016 decision in United Airlines. And just to keep firmly in mind what's at issue here, because you know, there are different mismatched sets, what was at issue in United Airlines was whether this tax allowance resulted in double counting, and this is important, for pipelines, who for MLP pipelines, who compute their like rates on cost of service basis. Um, what we're talking about here is indexing. So, you know, the commission was wrong in a, in a twofold way. Um, the United Airlines um, sort of 
case, and what was at issue in United Airlines with respect to double counting, really applies to cost of service rates. This is index rates. And so it really has nothing to do with whether, with respect to- That are computed on the base of cost of service. And once those costs of service are determined, they apply across the board to all pipelines, whether they're MLPs or not. So everybody was able to elevate their prices accordingly. They are not computed on the basis of order 154B, which is how you compute cost of service. They're computed on the basis of some comparison or some recoverable cost with the other. In fact, the whole point of- Tax recoverable cost. I mean, as the commission explained, and it seemed quite clear to me that in fact, these taxes were in there. They were part of the information on which the index was based. And once the index was based on that, it applies to everybody, not just MLPs, and it elevated it. And so we have to deal with that. But the reason why, with respect to MLPs only, United Airlines thought there was the potential for double recovery is because if you do cost of service rate making, you get a return on equity. And the court thought that the taxes were already covered by the return on equity. Indexing sort of compares a set of costs here and a cost of costs here, not return on equity. And it does it on an industry-wide basis. So with respect to, you may well think that a particular pipeline who did cost of service was engaged in double counting, but you have two problems. Number one is the entire industry is not MLP pipelines. And so therefore you cannot extrapolate for the index. Their cost caused an elevation in the index for everybody. Right. You cannot have the tail wag the dog. That's one problem, even if they were right. And number two is you cannot extrapolate from a different methodology that you think might give you a double counting problem to a methodology that's actually not at issue and which was adopted by Congress precisely so that you could simplify and get away from cost of service. And so it's a mismatch set. As I said, I mean, if the shippers thought that there were all these issues, they were welcomed to appeal the 2020 order. What they can't do is sort of have it be assumed that there's something wrong with it, never having exercised their appellate rights. The final point I will make is that it could be true, hypothetically, because this court said so in the Farmers Union case in 1984, that both of these rates are just unreasonable. I'm not saying they are. I actually think the 2020 are not. But the court said expressly in Farmers Union that the mere fact that the commission has one or another, there are a range of reasonableness that the commission could choose, especially when the commission is setting an index for the entire industry. And so, I mean, I am sorry for the commission. They should think better about how they write their orders, but they just goofed. There's a reason they're taking it back. And they were legally wrong in so many ways. I don't really have all morning to actually go through them. Can I just make sure that I understand your appointments clause argument? The commission says that the duties of the deputy secretary here were purely ministerial. And let me make sure I understand your response to that. What the commission says is that a lot of what the secretary and deputy secretary does is drudgery. And so my first answer is there is drudgery even in the most elevated stations. I think cabinet officers probably sharpen their own pencils and get their own coffee occasion. But the Lucia case in the Supreme Court said expressly, I think there's a footnote on this from Justice Kagan, that merely because you can point to a number of tasks, maybe even a lot of tasks that somebody engages in 
that might be characterized as those of an employee doesn't detract from the relevant question is, do you perform tasks that are significant under the law of the United States? Here, I will start just with the task that the commission claims the secretary and deputy secretary can do here or no. Under their view of Allegheny, they can sort of provide, you know, the commission another year to engage in in rulemaking without complying with the APA. That's surely a very significant power under the law. And Buckley versus Vallejo said in uh, at page 126 that anyone who engages in the exercise of significant authority under the law is an officer, even if you exercise other duties. I will point out as well um, that they do other things. You know, you, you can you know, call deadlines. You can rule on motions to intervene, which affect the rights to the party. You can waive filing requirements. They accept service of process on behalf of the commission, which binds the commission. You can set processes for contested audits, which, again, have effects on primary parties. In many respects, many of these things are just like clerks of court, which the Supreme Court held in the 1830s, are officers of the United States. Um, would that be different if the commission were not here insisting that you can extend deadlines for tolling? I don't know. But you start with the proposition that by the commission's own telling, they have this immense power to affect my client's rights by changing the, the rates that they're going to be able to charge without any compliance with procedural rules that otherwise apply. That's their version of the story. And if that's not a significant power, I don't know what it is. And your your reading, of course, um, of 18 CFR um, 375.302, which is the regulation um, dealing with these delegations uh, to the secretary, the secretary's designee, is that, you know, all of those things from A to, to Z and then double uh, A um, are things that are completely within the discretion of the secretary or the secretary's designee. Correct. And just to be clear, I will accept for present purposes that a lot of those are ministerial and drudgery. I listed for you those from that list that I think have more significance. As I said, based on the Lucia case earlier, I have no quarrel with the proposition that there is a lot of drudgery even in the most elevated stations. But I think if you look at at all of them and V, which is the one that's at issue here, is fairly down the list. Um, you know, the commission could perhaps characterize many of them as drudgery and ministerial, but not in a case in which the commission's opening bid is this this functionary has you know the power to affect substantial rights by enabling the commission on his own say so to fail to comply with the APA and completely change the regulatory framework for an industry a year after the fact. What if the facts were that the secretary or his or her designee only tolls when the commission tells them to? Um, interesting case. Uh, I have thought about that hypothetical. You would have to consider what other duties the deputy secretary or the secretary have. If the commission had a record that this was an order of the commission itself, I don't think we would have this issue because it would not be this was done by um, by somebody who should be an officer but wasn't. The argument would be this was done by the head of the department, and we would not get to the um, uh, we would not get to the officer question. If the commission had a record to say um, this was actually done by the commission itself, here's a vote. We voted to 
do this, there will still be questions as to whether they comply with Allegheny and the 30-day deadline and the regulation, but you will not have an appointment clause issues because the action will be that of the head of the department and not that of the of a subordinate who was improperly appointed. Not every not every tolling order is going to have a decision that affects substantive rights. If they told if the tolling was for 48 hours because the printers were broken in the commission's office to get the rehearing decision out. What makes it consequential here is not the tolling order, but what the commission did and when the commission did it, as I understand your argument, after the tolling order. I respectfully disagree about 40% with that, Your Honor, because I think your own opinion in Allegheny points out that what makes it consequential is that the commission does this in the vast bulk of cases as a matter of course. And you can look at the order in this case, which incidentally is the JA-954, and you will see that in all respects it is identical in form and in substance and in language to the order that you had in front of you in Allegheny. The problem there was that a tolling order itself was consequential because it cut parties off from seeking judicial review to which the statute entitled them. That doesn't happen here. As you have said, the carriers could have gone to court with a rehearing petition pending or never even needed to file a rehearing petition. No, without a rehearing petition pending. If they file for a rehearing, they can't go to court. They have to elect the remedies. But I guess you know... They could have withdrawn it after the tolling order and then gone to court. So one, I don't know how often they do this in ICA cases. Two, it's not having the consequence, the legal consequence that it did there. And three, tolling orders in any circumstances may not have the legal consequences they did here. For it to have sort of primary conduct affecting consequences, that sort of depends on what the commission does and when it does it. No, but I think all I need to show with respect to my argument here is that the textual authorization to the secretary or the deputy secretary allows what happened here, which is to write off the 30-day deadline from the regulation here. And that would make whoever was in charge of printing out the 2022 decision here an officer of the United States because they were part of, they made possible the issuance of the decision in 2022 that changed everything. That's not how it works. So we really look at who is responsible for the substantive conduct that affected people in a material, affected legal rights or affected them in a material way that we expect of officers, not employees here. And it's not simply, it's not just issuing a tolling order under the ICA. I suggest to you that this is hypothetical. It's sort of far afield from this. But in fact, I think your own survey of the practice of the commission in Allegheny and what happened here demonstrates that in cases where it matters, which is to say, you know, the commission doesn't want to comply with the 30-day deadline. It is the exercise of significant power. If somebody is coming to complain. This is an entire voluntary re-hearing process. It's not statutorily required as it is under the National Gas. It's not a jurisdictional predicate like it is under the National Gas. It's not voluntary to the adverse party if the commission chooses to grant it out of time a year later. The problem is not the tolling order issue, but what the commission did afterwards. The commission. Well, sure. No, but the, okay. That's an issue that actually is an issue we haven't spoken about today, which I think sort of adverse to an issue that the commission has barely raised. But the answer to that question is to the extent that there's any notion that the commission 
um, itself act on this later, so therefore no harm, no foul. I think the answer is the consequential duties to which you're referring are not from the tolling order itself here. They were in Allegheny because they cut off the ability to go to court. No, but under, under the commission's view, you know, if you had a rule that had been adopted in like on year one and an agency wanted to change it on year three, I don't think anyone would contend that the agency would not have to comply with notice and comment to sort of flip back on the rule. The only fig leaf that the commission has is the proposition that the rehearing uh, period was still live and active and permitted them to somehow use the rehearing rule as an escape hatch. But the reasons I... The commission did. That's well, right. No, the that, secretary did. that is the effect of the tolling rule, because if the tolling was ineffective, at the time the commission purported to uh, to act, it didn't have the authority. That's what FEC versus NRA Victory um, Fund said. Um, in, in the FEC case, you know, the Solicitor General tried to ratify the cert petition after the after the deadline, and the commission said no. I mean, you know, the court said no. In order for you to be able to ratify the action of somebody who actually didn't have the authority, you have to do it within the timeline that it applies. So all of this would be well and good if the commission had purported to act on rehearing within 30 days. But insofar as they didn't do that, I don't think that this argument actually gets the commission anything. I mean, the commission can act on rehearing or not on rehearing to change a rule, but they have to comply with the APA. And if the tolling order purports to give the commission the authority to do that a year later without complying to the APA is an exercise of significant authority, uh, if they're right, which requires this person to be properly appointed. Thank you, Your Honor. Judge Wilkins, do you have a question? I'm just trying to make sure that I understood your last response. Are you saying that entering the tolling order in and of itself alters the kind of rights and responsibilities of the parties? Um, it, that order itself, or are you saying it does so because it allows the commission to alter the rights and responsibility of the parties later. And I think the commission I'm, would not be able to do that later absent the tolling order. I think I'm saying at least number two, but I think number one would be sufficient. But I'm certainly saying number two. Um, I think in, in cases where the tolling actually does any good from the commission's point of view. It is intended solely and exclusively for the commission to be able to act 30 days, more than 30 days after the fact. And so therefore the intent of the provision is for the commission to be able to act outside of the regulatorily permitted time period. And therefore that itself is the exercise of significant authority. Um, where the commission in fact denies or grants I think is helpful to the case, but the exercise of giving the commission a time that it would not have under the rule unless the rule is changed is itself the exercise of significant authority. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Estrada. Mr. Aducci. May it please the court, Steve Aducci on behalf of Shipper Petitioners, I would like to respectfully reserve two minutes for rebuttal. FERC's May 22 rehearing order is arbitrary, capricious, and an abuse of discretion. 
on the issue of shippers' ability to be made whole for FERC's error in its 2020 index order, FERC's decision to allow unreasonable index ceiling levels and related undealing un index uh, ceiling rates to stand and preclude shippers from seeking relief from the same is directly contrary to its unambiguous regulations and statutory responsibilities and precedent. <clears throat> FERC's primary de uh, defense is a claim of deference. Shipper petitioners do not dispute that FERC has a degree of deference. But as uh, Exxon do said... Do your arguments require a vacature or just remand? Would your argument require... You said it's contrary to statute um, and agency... Uh, the May 2020 order should be vacated. The January 20... May, May 22 order should be vacated. The January 22 order should be revised and directed that shippers should be provided and placed into the same position they would have been but for the error created by the 2020 order. I'm sorry. So the, the, the January 22 order should be vacated? No. Or remanded? Well, you just said it was a, their decision not to allow... The, the I decision, guess the rehearing decision, the decision but, but they did they did it in both orders. They didn't allow it in both orders. Actually, in the January 22 order, it was unclear. That's mm -hmm. why we filed a request for clarification and rehearing to determine what they actually meant, given that they said make those rates effective July 1 of the first index year. But then in the paragraph 106 said make it uh, effective March 1 of 2022, contrary to their regulations. So May 22 order should be vacated. And the January 22 order should be clarified. Because nothing in the January 22 order actually says that we're precluded from getting relief. In fact, when we filed our, our request for clarification, the pipeline industry filed in response and agreed with our position. So the January 2022 order is actually, in our opinion, clear to the extent that it needs to be uh, consistent with the statute, the regulations. The May 22 order took it a step, a step too far and indicated that for Feb, uh, January 1 through February 28 of 22, the unreasonable index ceiling levels and index rates, ceiling rates, should stay in effect, notwithstanding that they were unreasonable. FERC has put forth two factors to justify its decision for its action. One, that such relief would be inconsistent with EPAC's goals of streamlined rate making, and that FERC's, and two, FERC's handling of future complaints would be unduly burdensome. As to undue burden, FERC's responsive brief has effectively abandoned that argument and does not attempt to support its claims. This is not surprising, given that the shipper's ability to file a complaint against index rates that are above reasonable index ceiling levels was part of regulations implemented along with all the other comprehensive regulations that put in place the simplified rate-making regime that FERC is, is defending today, indexing. It would be illogical to say that a regulation allowing complaints against index ceiling levels or index rates above index ceiling levels is burdensome when it's consistent with the simplified regulations put in place. FERC's second contention is that retroactive relief would be inconsistent with EPAC's simplification goals. As found in AOPL and Order 561, the simplification and streamlining goals of uh, EPAC 92 were accomplished when FERC established its indexing regime to decrease the frequency of complicated cost-based rate proceedings. That is all. FERC's streamlined argument 
has no bearing on FERC's enforcing the ICA's requirement, including Section 1.5 of the ICA, that makes it unlawful, makes unreasonable rates unlawful and prohibited. The goal of administrative efficiency does not free the agency from that requirement. FERC argues that it never found the 2020 index ceiling levels and, and inferentially the 2020 index ceiling rates unjust and unreasonable. The record doesn't support that. First, FERC does not dispute that the index factor approved in the January 22 rehearing order is the just and reasonable index factor. Relatedly, FERC does not dispute that application of the index factor of that index factor for the year uh, index year 2021 generates the just and reasonable index levels for index year 2021, the entire index year. Relatedly, FERC does not dispute that the index factor and index ceiling levels corresponding index ceiling rates resulting from the 2020 order are in error and that those rates are in excess of the reasonable index ceiling levels generated by the January 22 order. FERC and this court have made plain in Order 561, 561A, and in AOPL 1 that rates in excess of the index ceiling levels found reasonable are presumptively unjust and unreasonable. Third, FERC's January 22 hearing order specifically made claims and said the 22 index order yielded incongruous and unreasonable results. It also claimed that failure to include the income tax policy statement um, is, is a major flaw, and it must be included in order for just and reasonable ceiling levels and rates to be, to be achieved. Based on the totality of these facts, FERC cannot support a claim that the index fact and resulting index ceiling levels and corresponding rates coming out of the 2020 index order are anything other than reasonable. FERC's interpretation of its indexing regulation similarly fails to justify its position. FERC contends it is entitled to allow the index ceiling levels and index rates from the 2020 order to stand in place because index regulations do not otherwise preclude such an outcome or dictate what the commission should do when acting on rehearing. The procedural posture of the case makes no difference. FERC's position is also not sustainable in light of its court's decision. In Waterkeepers, this court addressed a similar theory proffered by it said repeated and it repeatedly said it said repeatedly that it would reject the notion that the absence of an express proscription allows an agency to ignore a proscription implied by the regulation or by the statutory language. Same principle is applicable here for the agency's interpretations of its regulations. Here, FERC not only is ignoring an implied proscription in its regulations, it's ignoring a direct statement that it applied to the carrier. In paragraph 106 of the order, of the January 22 order, FERC directed that any pipeline with a filed rate that exceeds the recomputed ceiling level must file to reduce the rate to bring it into compliance with the pipeline's recomputed ceiling level as required by section 342.3E of the commission's regulations. Section 342. You're right, but, but they can commission concluded that it had to had to address the tax change as part of um, the index um, and if they're right that 
say either there was a tolling problem or notice and comment problem that requires vacature. What's, and these are just hypothetical, I'm just throwing out, what's the remedy? Because it would be under your theory, we reinstate the December order. That's reinstating an unjust, a rate that, as you read it, the commission found to be unjust and unreasonable. On the other hand, if they're right as to at least those two arguments, vacature would be quite the usual course. In their case, vacature would be as a result that FERC was wrong in the way it revised the 2020 index back. Well, either that it had authority to revise it at all, tolling issue, or that it was going to revise it, it had to go through notice and comments. So, but just assume, just assume one of those is right and it would require a vacature and assume you're out, you're, you don't have to assume it. I'll assume you're right that uh, the commission found it was unjust and unreasonable uh, that the rates that didn't factor in the tax uh, change were going to, would be, were unjust and unreasonable from the December order. What's the remedy? Because normally the vacature of the 2022 order would reinstate the December 2020 rule. Correct. You tell me is a rule that, if you read it, the commission, as you read it, the commission found was imposed unjust and unreasonable rates, which of course you just can't do. The ultimate remedy for shippers would be kicked down the road. Yeah. Sorry? It would be kicked down the road because it would. Kicked down the road? Yes, because neither of those rates. Well, what rate, happens in the meantime? The rate, if, if, if there's vacature of the 2022 order and the prior rate goes into effect, pipelines are required to make that rate change. That rate change would still not be final because you have an ongoing investigation. When you have an ongoing investigation, the rate does not become final. Everybody has put on notice that that rate will could change. And once that is final, the remedy there would then take place. Are those what's ceiling? The, what's the ongoing investigation? The ongoing investigation is what is the proper index factor. Here in this case, the five-year index factor is being decided for the full five years. Everybody was on notice of that from the notice of inquiry to every subsequent order. Everybody was put on notice of the fact that this proceeding was going to derive an index factor that was going to be, be applied five-year period, starting July 1 of 2021. Everybody was on notice. So when the first order came out in 2020 and, and it was issued, and FERC issued its 2021 notice instructing uh, pipelines on how to implement that index factor, it specifically had a footnote saying, you're doing it pursuant to this to this order. This order is subject and pending a rehearing, putting everybody on notice that that rate was subject to investigation and subject to change, so that when the January 22 order came, well, it was legally it was, operative, right? It was a legally it was a legally operative rate. It was an effective rate, really. It was legally binding, right? What if, if the pipelines hadn't complied once it took effect? That the December rate took December 2020 rate went into effect at a minimum, right. effective date. Once that went into effect, if they hadn't complied and then charged an even higher rate. They'd have been in violation of the of the statute, correct? Correct. That's the difference they between. They could a, be sanctioned, correct? Correct. That, but that's the difference between a legal rate and a lawful rate. A legal rate can be Arizona Gross. Mm -hmm. Legal rate can be filed by a pipeline and put into effect. A shipper like us 
can we we can challenge mm-hmm. that rate stays in effect subject to the outcome of that proceeding once the commission rules and says let's say shippers win that rate is modified going back to the date of if shippers lose the rate continues on and it's considered now the lawful rate that's the jnr rate because the commission said it what the commission doing here is nothing more than an extension of what all of these pipelines have been doing all along a, a rate proceeding indexing is the largest rate proceeding for the carrier industry so when that rate proceeding starts everybody's aware that when the first index factor happens it's going to generate an index factor it's going to generate ceiling rates pipelines are going to file to put those into effect if there's a rehearing and that and and subject to further investigation that rate is the legal rate that's all it is it's not a lawful rate determined to be just and reasonable it's a legal rate and once the investigation is done and the final index factor is arrived at, that's when it becomes then. When has that legal lawful distinction been applied in a notice and comment context? In the notice and comment? I mean, I get the file. file I would say that's I would different. Say this is the notice only... and comment. And it's a little weird to say that a notice and comment rule is uh, maybe a, legal but not lawful. In an analogous situation, back in 2003, this court remanded the index factor that FERC generated. Mm-hmm. And it came back and they said, yes, we're going to change the it went from PPIFG. No, I get pursuant to court order. I'm talking by the agency. The, 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 the hypotheticals you gave me before were all agency proceedings, as I understood them. Right? Correct. Filed, then proceeding before the agency to challenge it. Correct. So, all right, but now we're talking about an agency proceeding that went through notice and comment. The 2003 index rate did go through notice and comment. Mm-hmm. So it went up. And- no, what I'm, 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 I'm talking, sorry, I'm not being clear. I understand your point about this happens all the time. Agencies do things and they come up on judicial review and that can change. That's just the rule of law, right? It can change or not. It can affirm or, or reverse or remand. We can draw with agency proceedings. What I'm asking you, though, is, is a different question because I thought your examples were involved in a different situation, which was a filed rate, just proceeding before the agency, and then another proceeding before the agency where a shipper comes in and says, Hang on, that's not a lawful rate. And then it gets changed. All of this is before the agency itself. What I'm asking now, is there a situation where the commission engaged in notice and comment rulemaking, and then there was another proceeding before the agency itself that was not notice and comment rulemaking that changed that legal rule that had been adopted through notice and comment rulemaking without more notice and comment rulemaking. Is there a precedent for this? That exact fact pattern, I'm not sure, but I can tell you the one that's closest. In the 2003 proceeding that was remanded, that started with the notice of mm-hmm. comment, notice of proposed rulemaking, and proposed a PPIFG minus 1%. Comments were filed. They came out with the negative 1.1%. 1%. Rehearing was filed. On that, FERC did not change its index factor. The people who re- who sought rehearing then appealed to the court. All along, that rate, the index, those ceiling levels and ceiling rates went into effect. They were into effect. They were quote uh, the legal rate, the lawful rate. They were the legal index ceiling. This court found that FERC had failed to justify its PPIFG minus one. Remanded it. With, without noticing 
comment. There would have been some comments, but it was no official notice and comment restart. We looked at it and said, you know what? Right. We need to change it to a PPIFG with no index differential. And they said, and we're going to put this into effect. At the time, the carrier said, in order to, you know, you held whole to correct that error, what you need to do is you need to retroactively take that index. Did they do that? Was there failure or their not failure? Was their decision not to go through notice and comment on remand? Was that challenged? No, no. There was just there might have been some comments, but no quote official notice and comment was done. So what for this court hasn't or another court has not approved the commission. Starting with notice and comment and then changing index without notice and comment. Changing after the remand, I do not believe there was official notice. That's all I can tell you. But what for did was then retroactively implement the new index ceiling levels and the index rate starting from the July one of the very first year of the five year review period and brought it forward for carriers to then put in place. The only difference there was that the carriers never asked for any type of financial remedy. And on that in that situation, the when the rate when when the case went back to the agency, was the rate still in effect? Yes. Those rates were still in effect. And what happened is that it showed that pipelines could have charged approximately one percent higher. But pipelines didn't ask for any financial remuneration or recoupment for the lost revenue. It simply said what you need to do is retroactively put that in those that index factor and related index ceiling levels into effect. July one of the very first year of the five year period. And then every year, July one, recompute the ceiling levels until you come to current. And that current year, even though it was mid year, they said you need to make those index ceiling levels effective July one of that year. And then you can change your rates going. I see that I'm out of time. Do you have any if there's any further questions? Thank you. We'll give you the little bit of time for rebuttal as you requested. Thank you. I hear from the commission, Mr. Glover. May it please the court. I'm Matthew Glover and I represent respondent, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. A lot's been discussed, so I'm happy to start wherever the court would like me to. I can start with what you were just discussing. I can start with the notice and comment discussion earlier. I guess I might point out that in terms of pipelines, notice and comment theory, right, they also sought rehearing. And so if we lost our ability to engage in notice and comment or sort of further adjustments to the index after that rehearing date, they would have been harmed by that as well. To the Allegheny discussion that you had with Mr. Estrada, you know, we have read Allegheny as telling us that the Natural Gas Act allows you to act on rehearing in four ways that are specified in the Natural Gas Act. We've treated the similar Federal Power Act the same way. We've modified our procedures with those to provide for effective and timely rehearing proceedings. 
The Interstate Commerce Act has different statutory text. And so we treat it as not superseding our regulation and preventing us from applying our regulation the same way that we've been applying it initially. And so I don't think that's a, sorry, did I cut you off, Your Honor? I don't think that's a weird way for an agency to continue using its regulatory interpretation that it had of the regulation from the outset when the court tells it you can't do it under these statutes. Did the meaning of the regulations text change then after Allegheny? No. What it means to act upon rehearing, did it change after Allegheny? No. We have always believed that to act upon rehearing included the tolling. That's why we have other regulations allowing for tolling orders. The court told us in Allegheny that acting in the Natural Gas Act, and we've applied it in the Federal Power Act because they're nearly identical or materially identical, I think is the term I'll use. We've applied it there as well. You told us that to act there means these four specified things, grant, deny, modify without a hearing. Was it modify without a hearing? Apologies, but there's four right there. So you told us that our regulation, as we've interpreted it as act means in our regulation, violates the Natural Gas Act, and so we cannot toll under the Natural Gas Act, and we don't. And we've applied that similarly to the Federal Power Act. But we've maintained a consistent reading of our regulation, and we think the different statutory text in the Natural Gas Act does not compel us to read our regulation differently. You know, we can continue reading it as we do, allowing for tolling orders. I was going to go to notice and comment, but that's where I was going to go. Okay, just on if we can just start with the notice and comment issue. So you heard the response to your point that the carriers also sought rehearing, which is that seeking rehearing is one thing. It doesn't specify the procedures under which rehearing would occur, and it's always been contemplated that a rehearing in a context like this or any further proceedings in a context like this that can result in a change to the rate would have to be accompanied by notice and comment. So I think this gets to maybe a conflict divisions between what we view as our notice and comment rulemaking. We view our notice and comment rulemaking as ending upon the conclusion of rehearing and not merely ending upon the initial order, as we call it, the first order that was issued here. And so I think it doesn't look like, you know, I know that they highlighted. If you could look at it that way, and I understand conceptually that you could frame it that way, but the point made is that the rate that went into the rate that is being reheard is a rate that's in effect as a matter of law. And so then if the rehearing comes along and can change that, then when you're adjusting something that is in effect as a matter of law, the APA just says you need to go through notice and comment. Yes, but again, I think that, you know, to drill down on some of your cases, right, your cases like Humane Society, the rule was published. There was no sort of ongoing proceedings. Well, other than it needed to be published in the Federal Register, but it had gone out. There was no ongoing proceeding seeking to change that rule. We had an ongoing proceeding under our regulations. We invite rehearing. We provide for rehearing. We've had rehearing on the five-year index in the past. And so, you know, we view our notice and comment as an iterative process that starts with initial comments, reply comments. We tell you what our order is. Then you can seek rehearing, and that rehearing can include asking to change aspects of the rate. You know, the pipelines say they wanted only a technical change, but one of the cases they relied on a couple times in the blue brief at 20 and 23 was Utility Solid Waste Activities Group, which told the EPA that it couldn't correct what they said was a find-replace mistake with WordPerfect in one of their regulations because it would change the – this had to do with the number of PCPs on a surface for which the surface 
couldn't, uh, it changed the metric, like the number that you would count for whether surfaces were regulated or not regulated. And you, you told them they couldn't fix that without more notice and comment because they completed their rulemaking. So on pipelines theory, we can't do anything on rehearing other than perhaps just say, here's a bunch more reasons. We couldn't give them the relief they want of, of these technical changes to um, our rule. I mean, I, I don't know that it's, I get your atmospherics point, but, you know, whether pipelines are trying to have their cake and eat it too really doesn't address the FERC's, FERC's obligation to comply with notice and comment rulemaking. And the one thing I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand with this ability to have, you know, it's weird having the IC Act and APA together, so having the rehearing authority, but also the general notice and common obligation. Um, when is it the commission's view that a notice and comment rulemaking that has gone into effect, it's not in that interim before it goes into effect, is there some point at which um, it becomes so final that they could only change it through notice and comment rulemaking? Or is there no such point as long as there's an open rehearing petition or a rehearing petition on a rehearing petition or a rehearing petition on a rehearing petition on a rehearing petition through that period? So I, I think our position is that it's at the point at which rehearing is completed. And it's not a sua sponte, like, you know, in sprint, the agency got a reconsideration petition a year after this court had actually ruled and affirmed what they had done in their initial rule. Um, and so there wasn't like a break like that where our rulemaking was completed. Our view is, is January 22 or May 22 here, because you had a rehearing on the rehearing. So it would be uh, May 22 as to the issues that were raised in that rehearing petition. Those were what would be still live or what we'd still be looking at. So part of the rule would be legally in effect and requiring us to come out rulemaking, but whatever parts from that rehearing petition would not. I think that would come from some of this court's cases, including consumer energy. Where the answer is yes. I, I think, let me back up. I think we would we would need to, uh, consumer energy, again, it distinguished this case, Spartan Radio Casting, and it's a fourth circuit case, but we think it's the analogous situation here. And it distinguished it because there, there was a rehearing request concerning whether the commission should promulgate the rule regardless of this one house legislative veto and should strike down the one house legislative veto. And the commission didn't do anything that was in that hearing request, didn't address those arguments, and instead said, actually, we're just revoking this rule for other reasons that were not sort of discussed in the rulemaking. And the court said, you know, essentially applying sort of an early version of the logical outgrowth, like, you're not doing what was discussed in rehearing, you're not doing these other things. Right, that's not rehearing. Yes. No, but what I'm asking you is, when does a rule become Final. Legally in effect. Well, it's final at the time they seek rehearing. Your regulations yeah, yeah, so I just There's levels of final. I don't know there's final one and final two or whatever, but I'm just saying legally final such that notice, I'll call it um, APA final. Let me call it that. And that will be a shorthand for it would require notice and comment rulemaking to change. I think so it becomes sure. APA final. I just want to make sure I understood your answer as to whatever parts were not encompassed within the May 2022 rehearing. Uh, it would have become final I May twenty twenty or what, if I can, thirty days or when? If I could, what time frame? Sorry, if I could start with kind of a, a basic example. If we issue calendar a rulemaking, um, and you have thirty days for rehearing, and no party files for rehearing, 
that rulemaking is final on the 31st day. There was no request for rehearing in the. But in this case, I'm trying to understand. So in this case, when did it when did it hit that APA finality mark? Was it. Was it let's so was it January 2022 when you issued a rehearing decision? Was it. And then or was it for the rehearing order, just rehearing order, you had another rehearing with that rehearing order and then we were filed within those 30 days. So it didn't become it might have become effective February 19th, but it didn't because a rehearing another rehearing petition was filed. Yes. But you say any part of the rule that wasn't covered by that rehearing petition became APA final on February 19th. I think I've kind of conflated two concepts. So let me back up. I probably wasn't clear. It would be final upon the second rehearing order. No one sought rehearing procedures are over. Rule is final. Both parties came to the court of appeals, different courts of appeals. We all ended up here. It would be final at that point. What I was trying to get at, I think, is actually a substantive point that on the second. Sorry, we final at which point? February 19th? The expiration of the time for rehearing from the last rehearing order, what we call the second rehearing. So no party sought rehearing of that. It was final. It was not subject to rehearing at that point. It was APA final. I think the term. I take it it didn't happen here. But if someone files a rehearing order on February 18th. March. Yeah, right. If they file it maybe on May 7th or May. So you have your rehearing order January 20th, 2022. Someone's got 30 days from that. That's what I was saying. So they've got until February 19th to file a rehearing petition. So February 18th, they file a rehearing petition. The commission on February 19th issues a tolling order. And then. Waits until May. 2023, which isn't what happened here. They wait till May 2023. Or May 2024. And let's say that rehearing petition was really broad. It covered a lot of stuff where you had multiple rehearing petitions. APA finality is not going to attach until. The commission decides to act in May 30 days after the commission acts in May 2024, unless there's rehearing petitions again. Yes. And just to clarify, from our view, that's when the rulemaking is completed. I think that's what you and I were talking about. APA finality being different than, say, final agency action to get to the court of appeals, et cetera. Yes, that is our position. How does that not conflict with humane society? I think they said, hey, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We want to look at this again. But in humane society, they had completed their process. They had sent the rule out. It had been published by the federal. Sorry, it had not been published. I apologize. It had been. What is the out for inspection, I think, is the terminology. I apologize. The court was interpreting there in a rulemaking that the agency was done with. And then the agency tried to restart it. Right. If you imagine a scenario where we issue an order or a rulemaking, sorry, we complete the rulemaking, let's say, December 17th, 2020, and no one seeks rehearing 30 days pass. Right. If we wanted to alter that rulemaking on the 38th day by ourselves, that's a new rulemaking proceeding or we would need to engage in new notice and comment. Because by our own understanding of the process, you notice and comment the rulemaking was completed. And now we're sui sponte going to try to address it. That's kind of what happened a little bit in Sprint. 
And in Sprint, the court did note that it was leaving open the question whether the FCC there could have adopted the position of the rehearing. It was a rehearing request a year after this court had ruled and, you know, all the way up here on the merits of the positions. Somebody new sought rehearing a year later, and a couple years after that, the FCC changed its position in a way that no one anticipated. And the court said it was not leaving open whether the reconsideration, like if you had just adopted the reconsideration motion proposal, it would have necessitated new rulemaking. Can I also ask, though, so the December 2020 order went into effect, was it July 1 of 21? I have that date right. December 2020 order, the first index went into effect, was it July 2021? In terms of went into effect, like when the index levels were changed, yeah, I think. Pipelines had to start complying with this index level. Yeah, so we then put out a notice, I think. So in, I think, March or April of 2021, what we do is we put out a notice each year telling you, because the index level PPIFG plus or minus something doesn't actually tell you what to multiply your prior ceiling by. So we do the math in a notice, and the shippers cited that in their reply brief, I think, at page 18. We put out that notice saying, you know, in accordance with this ruling, which is subject to rehearing, the first footnote noted that it was subject to rehearing, you should adjust your ceiling levels on July 1, 2020 to, you know, in accordance with this index factor. And the index factor ends up being, you know, 1.0 something or 0.99. Right, so, and if on July 2nd, a pipeline didn't comply with that and said, we think we need an even higher charge, charge a different amount, would they have been subject to sanctions? So there's a couple things that would go on there. So they file their new rate if they're choosing to index, and they file that rate, and the shippers can do what's called protesting it. So they can challenge that rate and say, I know I'm over time. They can challenge that rate and say, you know, we think that that rate's above the index level. It's our regulation, the indexing regulation, I think it's C1. We say in a challenge to an index rate, there's sort of two things you could show. One, that it's above the index level in effect. Or two, you can show that their cost of service is actually so. No, they're not doing that. They don't, yeah, they're not coming in and saying we want to justify this by cost of service. Like we're just doing, so on rehearing, it's not final. We're charging what we think we want to charge, which is a much higher amount. And you could say shippers could come in, but the commission itself could do an enforcement action, right? Those two things I was mentioning are what shippers can come in and say in protest. Sorry, that's what I meant. Shippers, if they want to. I'm just asking a different question, which is, do they have the legal authority without coming in and saying, no, actually, we want to do a cost of service, and here's our proposed rate? No, they just start charging this higher amount. You had a footnote saying it was rehearing. Can they do that? No, I mean, in theory, they could do that, but they're not then charging the lawful effective rate. So they're subject to enforcement. And I guess I think the point is, I think the force of Judge Millett's question is that at that point, the rate is legally consequential. Even though it's nominally subject to rehearing, it's legally consequential. And typically, when it's legally consequential in a way that would allow an enforcement action for failure to satisfy it, then adjusting it after that would occasion notice and comment. I don't mean to intercede, but... Again, I think this gets to our position is that it's a one notice and comment period and that the rehearing is an opportunity for additional comment in one notice and comment period. It seems that, and I get it's a weird situation with the two statutes, but it seems like 
the commission's position wants to say, you know, as of July 1, 2021, the December 2022 order with its index rate was final as the world, but not final as to FERC. So I think... You're paying fines? I assume you can do fines and penalties. It's got to feel awfully legally final to them. But if you say no, it's just a suggestion until we're done with rehearing, then that's a very different thing. But I'm not sure about the specifics of enforcement. I would think, again, you're charging what would be called a lawful or not a lawful, a legal effective rate. And so I think if you're charging a legal effective rate, if you're charging just what the January, what the initial order charged, I think your hypothetical was you're charging above that. So if you're charging just what that January order... No, my hypothetical is quite clearly they are not... Or... Whatever's better for the pipeline, I assume it's more. I would think if on rehearing, we ended up raising the index level to that, you know, they would have a defense that wasn't an unjust and unreasonable rate. If he didn't apply it. Well, true. I guess that would be, that would need to be sort of litigated on a complaint proceeding. But I take your point. Law can be enforced. It can... Judge Ravasan said, the conception we have now is that at least as of the effective date of these rules, they are final for all practical purposes, including enforcement actions by the United States government with consequences, adverse consequences. Again, I'm not final for the commission. I'm not exactly sure what our procedures and sort of what's necessary for enforcement action. So I would want to cabin that there may be defenses, there may be sort of... I'm not sure what's needed. Defenses and enforcement action has got nothing to do with whether the government has the ability to... Yeah. Whether it's a rule that can be subject to enforcement by the United States, whether you win is a different thing because there may be some other defense, but it's an legally enforceable rule, rate, index rate at that point. Yeah. Again, I think in the adjudication, in the adjudication scenario, you know, if you were adjudicating your rate or challenging, you're trying to raise your rate, you know, I suppose if an initial order, we said, yes, you should charge this rate and you charge something above that, it would be analogous. Are you saying it's different for notice and comment? No, I'm not saying it's different. I'm just trying to think about sort of scenarios where you would see this, where you have a, we tell you a rate, but it's still subject to continue proceeding where you know that that rate may change. That makes sense. Can I ask this question? So suppose instead of rehearing, because I think what's going on here is the agency is defining the process in a way that suits the agency. So the agency says, as long as rehearing's still afoot, then for our purposes, we're still engaged in the process of deciding what the rate's going to be. And so we don't have to issue notice and comment. And then from the carrier's perspective, they would say, well, sure, for your purposes, you're defining it that way, but then we're legally subject to a rate that's on the books. And so I guess my question is, how far does your theory go? Because that right now you're saying you can drop a footnote that says subject to rehearing, things may change subject to rehearing. And therefore, because it's still in rehearing mode, the APA's requirement of notice and comment hasn't kicked in. What if the agency just said, well, not subject to rehearing, but as long as we sui sponte decide that we're not going to rate change things, it's still subject to what we're going to call reconsideration status slash rehearing. And therefore, there's no requirement of any kind of notice and comment, even though we may change what's now legally operative. 
So I don't think we could, again, this goes to, I think Sprint is not the sua sponte. Is it Clean Air Council? There's a few cases where an agency has sua sponte. That utilities group, they sua sponte decided they were going to change this one aspect of this PCB calculation on surfaces because it was a word perfect, which many government agencies use. It was a find replace mistake. That's what they said. They sua sponte wanted to change it. And this court said, no, like your rule was final. Then you sua sponte came forward and changed it. That's because I think there wasn't any advance notice that they might do it. And I guess what I'm saying is that the agency just advertises that this, for our purposes, this is something that we can always reconsider. Again, I think that would be the distinction between our rehearing process, which is you always have the right to file for rehearing. You have 30 days. If no one seeks rehearing and that expires and we say, here's the index level, you know, we're thinking about this anew in a footnote, or we might think about this anew next year. You know, we've lost the quorum. But again, you know, that would require new notice and come up because that's a new, we're altering the rulemaking in a new proceeding. From our perspective, again, I need you to sort of buy our perspective to prevail. But from our perspective, the notice and comment wasn't complete. I think at the start of your hypothetical, the notice and comment is not done until we have acted on rehearing and there's no further rehearing. Again, as to being able to appeal to this court, when both parties sought rehearing, the rule was non-final as to their ability to get into court. But in your hypothetical where no one seeks rehearing or we rule on rehearing and then the time expires and we just let the world know, like, we might change this in the future, we need new notice and comment rulemaking in that scenario. What if instead you issue a note, there's no rehearing petition, but on day 30, you issue a notice that says, hey, the D.C. Circuit just issued a decision today that scrambles how index rates are meant to be computed. We've got to revisit this. We're going to revisit this and see if that decision affects the rule we've done here. Stay tuned. So in your hypothetical, it's happening on day 30. Again, I think that the day 30 point is when someone is seeking rehearing. It's not our own sua sponte. So I think what we could do in that scenario, and I was going to use... Well, that was the date you kept giving me for when something became legally effective absent rehearing. Yes. But that's based on someone seeking rehearing. It's not based on us sua sponte, you know, sua sponte changing an order. What happens in that hypothetical? So I think we would have a couple of options. One would be to take the sort of notice of proposed rulemaking approach. If the D.C. Circuit has issued an order saying, you know, you can't use page 700... You have to go through notice and comment rulemaking at that point. Yes, I think we would need to go through... But if you did that on... And that would be whether you... If you did it on day two, it doesn't matter. If you do it during this 30-day rehearing window, it doesn't matter unless, fortuitously for you, someone files a rehearing petition. Yeah, if you issued that ruling on day two and someone on day three filed a rehearing petition, our notice and comment period is not completed. If you issued that ruling on day 31 and no one had sought rehearing before that, our notice and comment period is completed, you know, and someone files a, you know, new request for reconsideration or clarification on day 31. I think we have to have, you know, new comment, or it could be that... I'm not sure. Again, I would caveat, like, I think it might be one of the good cause exceptions to having notice and comment. If you literally told us in a different proceeding that, you know, page 700 must be used, but you must strike out these two lines, like, we might be able to just follow... Let's hear what the impact is, but there's definitely something you want to... Yeah, I guess I was just saying, I'm not sure if you told us exactly what we had to do. I think that would be a good cause exception. We don't need more notice and comment to have the parties tell us, 
yes, follow the court. We would just follow what the court said. Might need notice and comment to see how people interpret what the court said. No, that's... So whether notice and comment kicks in, in your view, is really dependent upon whether some third party decides to file a rehearing petition or not. Because we view that as part of the rulemaking proceeding and so as part of our notice and comment period. And so if our notice and comment period has not expired, then we don't think we need to start anew if it hasn't expired. But are there other examples where an agency can engage in notice and comment rulemaking, promulgate in the Federal Register its final rule, and then have a continuation of the notice and comment rulemaking process that only one party gets to engage in and that the rest of the public cannot weigh in on, which is how rehearing works? So any aggrieved party can raise any issue, I guess I would say. So you're right. If you're not aggrieved as to an issue, you wouldn't be raising that issue on rehearing. But it's not like... They don't get to participate in the commission's discussion or consideration. They don't get to have input into the issues raised in that rehearing petition, which is hard to, at least with our traditional understanding of notice and comment, say that's a continuation of notice and comment. I'm not aware, but you might be aware of a situation where agencies have such a sort of unilateral single party role in notice and comment rulemaking, but I was not. I'm not aware. I think, you know, part of the sort of factual scenario here is we did not go outside of our original notice. It's not like we changed. We actually went back to the very methodology that was in the notice at JA. I think paragraph nine of that notice talks about what we were going to do with data trimming. I think it's 10 and 11 that talked about what our plan to do with the income tax policy. So we did return to the methodology that we had laid out in the initial order. So everyone had an opportunity to comment on that substance, right? Within the scope of the issues for notice and comment, but ordinarily, again, in notice and comment, if somebody came in and said, here's our ex parte filing, don't let anyone else comment on this suggestion we're making to you. Between the NPRM and the post NPRM, someone comes in and says, here's a filing that we don't think you should let anyone else comment on. And he says, that's great. We're taking all the comments, except nobody can comment on companies a ex parte filing with us during this notice and comment period. But we're only going to address the issues that are within the scope of the NPRM. That wouldn't be consistent with notice and comment rulemaking, would it? Well, I think to some extent, if you have just one comment period and someone files on the last day of that comment period, and many agencies do, no one gets to reply or respond. Like they don't get to, you don't have to show everyone else your comments before you file them. So, you know, some agencies at the time we were writing the briefing, the two most recent rules, when I went to look at regulations.gov were Department of Education rules, and they had both provided like 33 and 30 something else days, a single comment period, you file on regular. That's very different from an agency saying no one else can comment on this proposal, which is what your rehearing regulations say. That's a different thing than just saying it's the effect where people are deadline driven and that's what happens. But to have instead, as part of the notice and comment process, an agency rule that says this particular type of filing cannot be commented on by anyone else. No, I understand. I guess the one point I would make in terms of they could comment, they could seek rehearing if they thought we had done something sort of, you know, out of the norm or if they wanted us to revert back to something prior. And again, this goes to, I think what you ruled in 
in Association 2, if we do something on rehearing or in the index that no one had any notice was going to happen, we don't contemplate, you know, that's a problem in the second index, the 2000. If this is a continuation of your notice and comment process, and it's an aspect of it that does not allow other people to weigh in, then it's a broken notice and comment process. Is that what you're telling me? No, I think they would get enough. If we change our position on that rehearing order, they could seek rehearing with us as to that. They could challenge that in the Court of Appeals if they think we didn't explain it, if they think, as in the 2000 order, we scrapped the con in. They could, but nothing requires them to under the ICA. They could come here instead and say, that's not notice and comment rulemaking. You can't have notice and comment rulemaking where people are, the agency instructs the public not to comment on a filing. And right, they could do that, right? Yes. And that would still be just the same question before us, would it not? Whether you can have a notice and comment process where there's a stage when the agency says no one else comment on this input. And they could do that here. They don't have to, they could do it before you, but they get to choose under the ICA Act where they want to fight it, correct? Yes. And that's what they've done here. They've come here and said that you can't, this isn't, this can't be notice and comment. I think that gets or dovetails with, again, it's not a statutory exhaustion, but, you know, in Tesoro and Exxon Mobil, the 2009 Tesoro, the court said you should be raising these types of issues to the agency. If they'd raised that with us, we would have responded to their position that they needed the ability to comment. The 2015 Tesoro, which has a footnote. But we've also said they're not going to know, they're not going to know that you've relied on that until you issue your new rehearing decision. And we don't require them to have raised something, an issue, if they didn't know until you actually decided. And we do not require in the ICA Act that they perpetually file rehearing after rehearing after rehearing. They can, it's an option. But I don't know how we can say that was time for rehearing number three or number four. Meanwhile, this law is in effect and they're going to get enforced against if they violate it. Your injury was that you didn't get to respond to their rehearing request. You knew you were not going to get to respond to their rehearing request. Their injury is this procedural one where the agency has set up a scheme and designed it by their rules and regulations to call it notice and comment, but no one can comment on certain comments. It just seems, I understand it's like the agency is in this weird situation, but you call this a continuation of the original notice and comment, but we've sort of had quite sort of, you know, a drop off here in what looks like a notice and comment process. So again, if your injury is that you did not get to comment at the rehearing stage or you did not get to reply to the other side's rehearing, you could have raised a motion for reconsideration saying this is a rulemaking. We think that your regulation concerning rehearing as to not allowing responses to rehearing is, you know, inapplicable. We think the APA supersedes that and we have to get, you know. I'm not saying what they could have done. I'm saying, did they have to? Why couldn't, under the ICA, where they don't have to do rehearing at all. And they say, we couldn't have done it within the first 30 days because we had no idea they were going to rely on this, you know, filing to which no one can respond. And so here we are. And we can't wait. We can't keep doing serial rehearings because this index is about to take effect. And we have to know what we're going to be allowed to charge or not. This has enormous financial and operational consequences for us. What's wrong with them coming here and making that argument? I think, again, the argument, as I understand you're laying it out, is attacking the fact that we only allow 
parties that are aggrieved to file for rehearing. I do think they could challenge that regulation. No, not that parties are aggrieved, that you don't let other people comment on rehearing petitions, but you're calling this a continuation of notice and comment. We don't allow a response, I guess, after. Again, I'm not aware of notice and comment. Again, in the traditional, a lot of agencies just have the one period sort of automatically giving the responsive comments. It's one of the reasons we think that our iterative process is sort of wholesome and allows people to reply. We could just have initial comments, I suppose, which would look much more like rehearing where everyone files or maybe they don't file on the last day. You had no rehearing process and we would be here today. Sure. I think the shippers probably would have uh, petitioned for review of the on, these issues. <laughs> on the Sorry. merits issues. Um, you know, again, I would emphasize there's no surprise as to the merits issues in terms of what we did and what we came up with here. Can I just ask you, um, if, just on the appointments clause, one question. If, um, so just give you a chance to, to briefly respond to the submission you've heard and read that for appointments clause purposes, the person who's granting the tolling order actually has a bunch of authority that matters because of what can ensue as a consequence of granting the tolling witness what happened in this case. Yes. Um, so I've discussed this internally, so I know you're not normally supposed to read, but I do have a, a couple. I want to be very accurate and sort of clear. Um, the secretary's role is ministerial, even as to the tolling clause. A, a tolling decision is a decision about when the commission will issue a, a rehearing order. Uh, and so the secretary isn't sort of combing ICA dockets and saying, oh, I think this one merits rehearing, and, and so we should issue a rehearing order, and I think it doesn't merit rehearing. The chairman directed the secretary to issue the tolling order. Um, the secretary is exercising her delegated authorities. The chairman is exercising his authorities to manage the administration of the commission and, and our employees. And so it's not a freestanding sort of discretion that the secretary is exercising. Um, it's, you know, it's a decision about when we would time our orders, similar to, uh, you know, when we, the, the chairman decides when to have a vote, whether something's going to be at a specific open meeting or whether they're going to have a notation, although he schedules that. The tolling determination is a scheduling of whether we're having a rehearing order. If I can give sort of a, not a perfect analogy, but in our post-Allegheny practice, I think we've explained to the court a couple of times, again, it, you know, the notice is the end of the proceeding. I don't mean to say that, but we, we have two different types of notice. One will be one paragraph saying, you know, rehearing is deemed denied because it's been 30 days and we didn't act on it under the natural gas. Product. Sometimes we add a second paragraph saying, pursuant to, I think, Federal Power Act, it's 825L, Natural Gas Act, it's 717R, we retain concurrent jurisdiction with the court until the record is filed and we intend to issue a, a you know, follow-on order. That, you know, whether to add that second paragraph is the determination about when and if we're going to issue a rehearing order. The secretary isn't looking at the Natural Gas Act and Federal Power Act rehearing petitions and saying, I think this one the commission should act on. I think that one the commission, or, you know, sorry, not act within, but I think this one the commission should issue a later order if it still retains jurisdiction on, and that one it shouldn't issue a later order, or I think that the order in this one is so complex it's going to be scheduled more than 30 days out, so we need the two-paragraph Allegheny notice. The Secretary is not out there in the similarly in the ICA combing these dockets and making these determinations. These are order scheduling determinations that are made by the chairman. Um, the Secretary is under her delegated authority from the commission in I'm going to forget the regular seven, I think V785 or I apologize, I'm sure I've um, she is exercising that delegated authority from the commission to issue the tolling order, um, but it is ministerial. So no tolling order is issued by the deputy secretary without direction from the, uh, I'm, the chair I'm, or something like I'm that. I'm not aware of any without direction from the chairman. Specific direction. I, I asked as to this order, um, and, and, you know, because it did seem odd. I didn't know if we had some sort of standing 
directive that always told ICA cases. But I was told as to this order, the chairman directed the secretary to issue a tolling order. You know, the people who would, the attorneys working and the commission staff working with the commissioners on drafting orders are the ones that would have a sense of how long an order is going to take, and they would be advising the chairman on that. You know, the secretary isn't sort of going through these and making independent judgments or sort of discretionary calls on that. I did have one other clarification. Judge Millett, I think you rightly pointed out that the order, the first rehearing order at paragraph 17 says that the index must incorporate the change. I think four or five times, right? Yes. It's clearly, I think it's twice in that paragraph, and I do believe it's once or twice later. It's on JA 969, 970. There's another most on 972. Yeah. Have you seen it over 973? In response to the shippers contention at page 84 of our brief, clearly I used less precise or in the second sentence, but we weren't making a declaration as to each individual rate. Like the point I was trying to make was we said that the index level would be just and reasonable and to produce just and reasonable rates needed to incorporate this. We didn't say, and we've looked at all of the rates being charged. If it didn't incorporate it, it would result in unjust rates. Yes. But we didn't look at all of the individual rates charged and make some sort of determination as to those individual rates. And the second part, again, you know, rather we determine a just and reasonable index. I used should there. I should have said must. You're right. The order says must. That's bad drafting on my part. Incorporate the income tax policy change. And we decided consistent with prior index reviews that it was more appropriate to trim the data. So we also had the data trimming on rehearing. We actually also changed. We accepted one of the rehearing petitions from pipelines as to using some updated data. They said we had used some outdated data. So we made some other changes. The only two methodological changes were the income tax and the middle 50, middle 80. We made some other changes in the rehearing. And the point I was trying to make, which clearly I didn't do well, was we weren't commenting on individual rates. We were commenting on what the index level must be for it to be producing just and reasonable rates and what a just and reasonable index level was. And that as to that one change, we were saying it would be unjust and unreasonable not to have incorporated that. But we did make some other changes. Sorry. Can the index itself be unjust and unreasonable? Because I'm trying to understand what you're saying, because the index is then used by pipelines to set rates. And in theory, it could end up being just and reasonable for that pipeline because of the cost approach. But does the index, so since the index is not actually a rate, it's a mechanism for setting a rate, does the statute require the index to be just and reasonable? I think, you know, yes. We certainly in the Federal Power Act, you know, we had a recent case, DISTRA and the Federal Power Act, where there was a challenge about what's the actual rate, you know, but we treat the policies, practices, et cetera, around our rates as needing to be just and reasonable as well under the Federal Power Act. I think we would certainly treat it the same here. And you're right, an individual pipeline. You might treat it that way. Does the statute require it as in it would be illegal to reinstate the December 2020 index if you've deemed that to produce unjust and unreasonable rates, at least in some circumstances? I think if you remanded to us or if, you know, there had been no appeal, but we sua sponte came back and said, we like the prior index, you know, but we don't explain why it's now just and reasonable. We just say we like the prior index, start using that. 
you know, people would absolutely be able to come here and say, you said, I mean, they'd have an APA arguments about changing position without explanation, but you said that was unjust and unreasonable. How can you allow this, you know, what we're looking, you're saying now just charge an unjust and unreasonable rate or unjust and unreasonable index, which will result in unjust and unreasonable rates. So I think we need the index to be just and reasonable and procedural sound, et cetera. And to be just and reasonable has to produce just and reasonable rates as well. Make sure my colleagues don't have additional questions for you, Mr. Weber. Thank you. Thank you. Go to rebuttal now. Um, Mr. Estrada, we'll give you two minutes for rebuttal. We'll see where it goes. Your Honor, I'll try to be very, very quick. Let me just say at the outset, um, I think that FERC's counsel has made clear that the wolf comes as a wolf, as, as late Justice Scalia would say. Under their view, they don't have to comply with notice and comment, and they don't have to comply with the 30-day rule. So, so long as the process is ongoing in their view, whatever that may mean, they could take a year, two years, three years, four years, five years. They could announce at the end of the period that they thought better of it and redo it. And under the old Mr. Alducci's view, we have to give them back everything that we collected under the under the original view. There is no support in the case law um, under the APA for this, and there is no support under the tolling reg. As to the as to the APA. Um, you know, this court in consumer energy expressly dealt with the claim by the agency that the original notice and comment provided prior to promulgation was sufficient to cover the order of revocation. This is at the top of page 46. The court said, no, the APA requires you to, to provide notice and comment before you repeal something that is already effective. If the notice and comment provided prior to the rule promulgation were meant to be sufficient, the statute never would have included repeal of the rule within the definition of rulemaking. And so that claim is answered. I think, of course, it also follows a fortiori for humane society. This notion that we could always sort of like file for, you know, a hearing on our own, I think has been answered. But for good measure in Kennecott Corp, this is page 1019 of the opinion, this court said, no, the point of um, notice and comment is to so for the agency to do it in advance. Um, you know, petitions for reconsideration are insufficient to comply with with the APA, this is page 1019, permitting the submission of views after the effective date is no substitute for the right of interested parties to make their views known to the agency in time to influence the rulemaking process in a meaningful way. And so, again, you know, under the under the commission's view, they could be sitting on a rehearing application from the Reagan administration, and irrespective of the fact that the Berlin Wall fell and the, the world is entirely different, people would not be entitled to comment. Again, that's not how the world works. I think the only thing that I heard in Allegheny is this is our own interpretation of the language is not responsive to the two fundamental points that, however, you know, the commission might have exercised its option to adopt a different rule. The regulation it did adopt has the word, you know, rehearing and act upon that was also interpreted by this court. And, you know, they take out, you know, the the um, the uh, the uh, 30 day deadline, which is um, not actually sort of allowed. And ultimately, um, as Mr. Alducci did say, um, and I say this is the most important rulemaking in the industry. And everybody expects this to happen every five years. Well, precisely. That is point one in our grievance. This should not have happened, and the commission should have done better. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Alducci will give you the two minutes that you asked for. Thank you, Your Honor. Hopefully, I won't take the full two minutes. Um, just to clarify one point, um, Judge Millett was indicating about the character in the, uh, of a rate that is uh, put into place as part of the five-year index review. 
Now, on that point, we discussed in 2003. Now, the history of that 2003 is informative, and I just want to read it to you. In the first five-year review, the commission departed from the averaging methodology applied in order 561 in route to a decision maintaining the index of PPI FG minus one. And that was in 2000. They issued that. Uh, the decision was appealed, and the D.C. Circuit remanded it, holding that the commission had not adequately justified its change in methodology. That was in 2002. On remand, the commission decided to return to the Order 561 methodology, which resulted in an index of PPI FG with no differential. That was in 2003. The order was affirmed by the D.C. Circuit in Flying J, Inc., 363 F. 3rd, 495, in 2004. As of 2004, you had your, your final and your legal, lawful index factor. Prior to that, the pipelines had to put in place the index factor associated with PPIFG minus one. They had to, and they, when they put that into effect, they have two choices. One, fight FERC, say it's too, it's too low. Or they could make a filing with FERC for a cost of service rate that gave them something in during that whole process, however, Burke had always made plain, starting in with an SFPP decision in the 1990s, that if there is an error, we will keep you whole. And you can, and in this current proceeding, the carriers actually filed and said, we need to be kept whole. We want the ability to file a surcharge if this court overturns the January 22 order. Burke said, the proposal you presented is um, inequitable, but we're going to leave open the option of a surcharge for the carriers to be held whole. Now, we, in the in, in context of the December 2020 order, felt that FERC was not appropriate and had, had missed things and was an error. On rehearing, we overturned that based on the law, based on the data set, based on the existing record. They were required to change that rate. We want to be kept whole because that's what the commission normally does. If there's an error, you're to be kept whole. The only difference here, and that's why we're the petitioners here, is that um, FERC has arbitrarily decided to not allow shippers to be made whole, but in that same context have some inconsistency by saying that the carriers might be kept whole. We think it should be uniform. We think um, the proper remedy is to say, once that index factor is determined to be just and reasonable and you have the index ceiling levels, which are J and R, you compare it against that rate that's in, that's in place. To the extent it's lower, that means that higher rate is unjust and unreasonable, and we should be entitled to those rebates. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to all counsel. We'll take this case under submission.